Hi, this is Corey Olson, the Tolkien Professor, back again for another quick Q&A session. Today I'll be answering two questions that I received on my discussion board, one about dragons and the other about orcs. First, the Naren asks, Is Smaug one of the dragons told of in the Silmarillion, the great worms from the mountain that was the fortress of Morgoth, or was he a descendant of them from the land in the north? I see on Thorin's map the reference to a land from where dragons come. Which land was that, specifically? And why did Smog present such a threat to Gandalf? as he later mentions how terrible it would have been if Smog had lived. What about the other dragons? Or were they no more? Okay, well, Smog is certainly a descendant of the dragons we meet at the end of the First Age in the Silmarillion. I'll explain more about that later. I don't know if dragons die of old age or not, as we never meet an elderly and decrepit dragon, but it seems quite clear that Smog is not as old as all that. The Hobbit takes place in the year 2941 of the Third Age. Smog first arrives on the scene and sacks Erebor, the Lonely Mountain, in year 2770 of that age, only 171 years before. Yet in his conversation with Bilbo, Smog calls himself young and tender back when he sacked the city, whereas now, 171 years later, he considers himself old and strong. This certainly suggests that he had not been alive for some 4,000 or 5,000 years before that, so he must be a distant descendant from those first-generation dragons. Now, as for where dragons lived and how many there are, the answers to these questions are pretty speculative. As for their homeland, the story of Smog's arrival at the Lonely Mountain has him coming from the north, and most other references to dragons after the First Age associate them with the mountains north of the Iron Hills. We don't know all that much about this mountain range. A lot of dwarves live there, too, and given that both dragons and dwarves are very into treasure, they, they seem to have a fair bit of conflict. We hear a little about this in the story of Fram, one of the ancestors of the Rohirrim, who killed a dragon named Skatha when his people were still dwelling up in the north. Fram ended up quarreling with, and eventually being murdered by, the dwarves of the region who claimed much of the dragon's hoard. Gandalf's reference to dragons in his conversation about the ring with Frodo at the beginning of the Fellowship of the Ring, though it's quite brief, may give the clearest picture of the state of dragonkind at the end of the Third Age. He says, It has been said that dragonfire could melt and consume the rings of power, but there is not now any dragon left on earth in which the old fire is hot enough. He implies that there are dragons still alive in the world, otherwise he'd just say something like, But there are no dragons anymore, so never mind. But he suggests that dragons have diminished, not only in numbers, but in power. This is a pattern we see everywhere in Middle-earth. As time goes on, things diminish and fall from the stature and glory that they had of old. It's happening with the elves, just ask Goadriel. It's happening to the Numenorians, just ask Faramir. And Gandalf says it's happening to dragons, too. There are good reasons, therefore, why Gandalf doesn't seem to be too worried about one of the few and lesser dragons schlepping down to help out in the war. Smog, however, was a different story. So now for the big part of Vinarin's question. What is Gandalf so worked up about with Smog? Tolkien recounts in the Appendices to the Return of the King a conversation that Gandalf has with Frodo and Gimli after the War of the Ring. In this conversation, Gandalf is expanding on how pivotal the quest of Bilbo, Thorin, and company was in the greater scheme of things, and he makes some positively alarmist statements. He says, When you think of the great battle of the Pelennor, do not forget the battles in Dale and the valor of Durin's folk. Think of what might have been. Dragonfire and savage swords in Eriador. Night in Rivendell. There might be no queen in Gondor. We might now hope to return from the victory here only to ruin and ash. But that has been averted, because I met Thorin Oakenshield one evening on the edge of spring in Bree. 
In order to understand Gandalf's reasoning here, we need to go back and look at the political consequences of Bilbo's little trip. Three major political changes resulted. First, the dwarven kingdom of the Lonely Mountain, Erebor, and the human kingdom of Dale are re-established in force, and quite quickly, as dwarves flock into Dan's kingdom from all over, and the men of the lands just to the east and north of Mirkwood swear allegiance to Bard in Dale. Second, the orc population of the Misty Mountains is drastically reduced. Remember that not only were they making a nuisance of themselves in the mountain passes, but they were also gathering to make raids in force into the country being settled by men between the mountains and Mirkwood. This kind of thing was put a stop to by the large-scale massacre of orcs at the Battle of Five Armies. And third, largely as a result of the reduction of orcs, the aforementioned settlers are able to establish a stable kingdom and prosper under the rule of Bjorn. Thus the Northlands gained two stable kingdoms where before there had only been either the Wild or the Desolation of the Dragon. Now fast forward to the War of the Ring. The whole conversation with Gandalf is started by the news they receive of a huge battle in Dale. An army from the east attacked in force. The northernmost arm of the attacks on multiple fronts that Sauron put in motion at the same time as his armies were attacking Gondor. If not for the establishment of the kingdoms of Erebor and Dale, and of the Bjornings their allies, there would have been literally no one even to fight this army. Thranduil, the king of the elves of northern Mirkwood, would have had the only good army around, and he couldn't have done anything. He was fighting an army that came out of Dol Guldur in southern Mirkwood. We know that he and the elves of Lothlorien were both engaged there in southern Mirkwood, so he couldn't possibly even have engaged the northern army. If you have a copy of the Lord of the Rings somewhere, take a glance at a map of Middle-earth that shows the Northlands. If the elves of Mirkwood have their hands full, and there are no dwarf or human kingdoms, there is literally no resistance to that northern army. Either they turn south and attack the elves from the north while they're also being engaged from the south and thus probably squashing them like bugs, or they just keep marching west. There would have been nothing between them and Rivendell, the Shire, and the Grey Havens, except maybe a stray ranger or two. But, as it turned out, they were stopped at Dale and the North was saved. However, what Gandalf is pointing out is not only that there would have been no one to stop that northern army, but that that army would almost certainly have been marching with an ancient and powerful dragon to keep it company. We can easily imagine how devastating Smog would have been on a battlefield fighting for the bad guys. We saw him destroy Eskaroth all by himself, not to mention the original Dale and Erebor taken by surprise. It is not hard to believe that he could likely defeat armies single-handed, or, or clawed, or whatever. But, one might say, Smog seems to have left his wandering ways and settled down for a bit of quiet retirement in which to enjoy, dragon fashion, his hard-won life savings. Why would he join up and get into army life at his age? Well, dragon history gives us some pretty good reasons to imagine that he would. Here's what we learn about the history of dragons in the Silmarillion. Dragons were bred by Morgoth, the main evil guy and Sauron's old boss, back in the First Age during Morgoth's wars with the elves. Basically, dragons were a product of Morgoth's R&D department. He saw that his orcs were getting their butts kicked with alarming ease and regularity by the Noldor, the elves who returned from over the sea. So, seeing that that wasn't working out, he developed dragons as a new weapon to give his armies an edge in battle. They were rather like tanks or something in that way. The name of the first prototype dragon was Glaurung, and when Glaurung was full-grown and finally released into combat, he appears to be both primary weapon and field general to huge armies of orcs. Now, Glaurung doesn't do this out of kindness or a mere sense of duty. He's not just 
you know, like putting in his few years of compulsory military service in the armies of evil before he gets a comfortable civilian job. He is Morgoth's slave, but he also has a self-interested motive. In the height of his career, Glaurung and his army occupy a big chunk of the continent, but Glaurung's big military achievement is the sacking of Nargothrond, one of the last elven strongholds. Now, Nargothrond, as Glaurung probably knew, was the city of Finrod Felagand, who happens to be, as Glaurung may also have known, the elf who brought more sweet loot with him from out of Valinor than any other. When Glaurung takes Nargothrond, he achieves a major military goal of Morgoth his master, but he also gets to heap up all that loot in a big old pile and sit on it, which he does, until he is rudely stabbed to death later on. This episode is almost certainly what Gandalf is thinking about when he is imagining the impact that Smaug could have had in the War of the Ring. As terrible as Glaurung was in those ancient wars, Smaug would be worse. Glaurung, like Balrogs, was wingless. He couldn't fly. The winged dragons were an upgrade, a later model that Morgoth had developed in his tireless pursuit of the advancement of military technology. Morgoth didn't release Dragon 2.0 until the last battle of the First Age, when the entire host of the Valar, Maiar, and Eldar had descended upon Middle-earth to give Morgoth his long-overdue smiting. Tolkien mentions, though, that the arrival of the winged dragons on the battlefield was so ruinous that the army of the angelic host itself was pushed back until Arendil, Elrond's daddy, swoops in with the eagles to save the day. Notice, actually, that the winged dragons are almost like the anti-eagles, the winged force that comes in and suddenly turns the tide of battle. But anyway, the prospect of a powerful winged dragon in league with a large army of orcs and easterlings marching totally unopposed through the north of Middle-earth is a pretty sobering one. This is what Gandalf is talking about. There would have been two desirable objectives for this army, Rivendell and the Grey Havens, as Gandalf anticipates. Rivendell actually has some interesting similarities to Nargothrond. Both are one of the last remaining elven strongholds, hidden elven refuges near a river, governed by one of the greatest and most powerful leaders of the elves in his age. Also, as a home to a big chunk of the remaining Noldor refugees from the First Age, I'm betting there's quite a bit of swag in Rivendell to tempt a conquering army, especially a dragon. I bet if you took all the valuables in Rivendell and piled them all up together, they'd make a pretty comfy heap. A large army of orcs and easterlings could probably besiege Rivendell. An army with smog could almost certainly take it, just as Glaurung took Nargothrond back in the day. It is hard, therefore, to overestimate the importance of the long series of enormously unlikely events that led to the death of smog and the re-establishment of the kingdom under the mountain. And this, in the end, is what Gandalf is drawing attention to in his conversation with Frodo. Okay, I'd better move on to question two. Mark from Florida says... I think Tolkien didn't go quite in-depth enough into orc society. There is little information as to how their society is formed, why they align themselves with Morgoth, Sauron, and evil in general. How did they view the world? What did they feel about other races? Why are they always so easily defeated? To me, they had the numerical advantage at times, and properly led, they should have won many more battles. This is an excellent question, Mark, and I think that your observation that Tolkien didn't expand on orc society enough to really flesh out the orcs as a race is a very shrewd one. Let's start with some background information. Where do orcs come from, why are they evil, and how do they get attached to Morgoth and Sauron in the first place? There are actually a couple different accounts that Tolkien gave over the course of his career of the origins of orcs, but the one I'm going to focus on is the most mainstream one, the account given in the Silmarillion. Morgoth, who was previously named Melkor, was the greatest of the Ainur, the greatest of the servants of Iluvatar, or God. We are told in the Ainulindale, 
Tolkien's creation story, that Melkor's fondest dream is to have subjects and servants, and to be called Lord, and to be a master over other wills. We also know from the story of Aule and the making of the dwarves that the Valar can't make free and independent creatures. Only Iluvatar can do that. In order for Morgoth to get people to call him Lord, therefore, he must seduce, corrupt, or enslave creatures brought into being by Iluvatar. He starts with the Maiar, the lesser spirits of heaven, and draws some of them to his service. This is where Sauron and the Balrogs come from. Soon after the elves awoke by Lake Quivienen, Morgoth went after them, wanting to bring children of Iluvatar under his domination as well. Here's what happened. Silmarillion says, It is held to be true by the wise of Arisea that those of the Quendi, that is the elves, who came into the hands of Melkor ere Utumna was broken, were put there in prison, and by slow arts of cruelty were corrupted and enslaved. And thus did Melkor breed the hideous race of the orcs, in envy and mockery of the elves, of whom they were afterwards the bitterest foes. For the orcs had life and multiplied after the manner of the children of Iluvatar, and not that had life of its own, nor the semblance of life, could ever Melkor make since his rebellion in the Ainulindale before the beginning. So say the wise, and deep in their hearts the orcs loathed the master whom they served in fear, the maker only of their misery. This, it may be, was the vilest deed of Melkor, and the most hateful to Iluvatar. This is the passage that's rather confusingly paraphrased in the film by Saruman when he is breeding his new special subspecies of orcs. I'll talk more about that later. When Morgoth is done with them, the elves that he has warped, perverted, and twisted into orcs are thoroughly evil. The primary outlook of the orcs, so far as we learn, is dominated by hatred, selfishness, and the enjoyment of violence and the suffering of others. We see this in the earliest published description of orcs, in chapter 4 of The Hobbit, when we're told that they did not hate dwarves especially, any more than they hated everybody and everything, and particularly the orderly and prosperous. We get a much clearer view in the conversation that Sam overhears between Shagrat and Gorbag, the two orc captains in the two towers, who meet outside Shelob's lair where Frodo has just fallen. The two seem to be quite friendly. Gorbag proposes that once the war is over, he and Shagrat might go off together and set up somewhere on our own with a few trusty lads, somewhere where there's good loot nice and handy and no big bosses. Now this is not quite innocent, they're certainly not planning to retire from a life of violence and start a farming commune, but it's at least chummy. A short time later, however, when we meet them, Gorbag is trying to stab Shagrat in the back with a spear, and then Shagrat stabs him in the throat, jumps up and down on his corpse while mutilating the body, and then licks Gorbag's blood off his knife. When the first opportunity for personal enrichment comes in the form of Frodo's mithril coat, all ideas of loyalty and friendship go straight out the window. Sam observes the same thing when he watches one orc shoot another in the back and then run off, while Sam and Frodo are climbing around the foothills of the Mountains of Shadow in Mordor. Sam comments, If only this nice friendliness would spread about in Mordor, half our trouble would be over. But Frodo replies, That is the spirit of Mordor, Sam, and it has spread to every corner of it. He adds, however, They hate us far more, altogether and all the time. In Tolkien's world, evil always hates, fears, and desires goodness. It makes me think of the description Tolkien gives of the Song of the Barrow White in the Fellowship of the Ring. The night was railing against the morning of which it was bereaved, and the cold was cursing the warmth for which it hungered. We can see this same principle at work, even back in Tolkien's reference in The Hobbit that goblins hated particularly the orderly and prosperous. Now for the question about why orcs don't win in battle more often. 
The first thing I'd point out is that their performance rating isn't actually all that bad. They don't carry the day too often in the Lord of the Rings, but their win-loss record in the Silmarillion is much higher. They have help, of course, as I've explained while discussing dragons, and they could never stand up against high elves in an even fight. But they won their share of battles. I think Mark has already put his finger on the answer in the way he framed the question. He says, why are they always so easily defeated? To me, they had the numerical advantage at times, and properly led, they should have won more battles. Now, that is very likely true. The problem is indeed leadership. I would argue that good leadership is not possible among orcs. When you look at good kings, generals, and leaders in Tolkien, they are all associated with love. They love their people, and they inspire love in them. Just think how Theoden's people respond to his healing, or how the men of Minas Tirith, like Baragon, feel about Faramir. Among orc armies, there is never unity, there is never self-sacrifice, there is never dedication to the cause of the greater good. Each member of the army is thinking about his own good and his own pleasure, and that's why they often have to be driven into battle with whips. Think about what we see of orc camp life during Merry and Pippin's crossing of Rohan with the uruk Hai. There are divisions, wrangling, murders, and ultimately treachery. Remember Sam's comment about the nice friendliness of Mordor. Evil is always self-defeating and self-destructive in Tolkien. That's its nature. Okay, but I still haven't said that much about orc society. What is it like? Well, there's not all that much that we know, clearly. From what we see, I'd say that we'd be fooling ourselves if we imagined some kind of alternate culture with different values, as if, could we go among them in secret, we'd find that in their own caves and among their own people, they had many noble traditions and pastimes, you know, enjoying bocce and croquet or I don't know what, but anyway, I I don't think that's going to happen. The orcs seem to live in a modified anarchy. They do have kings, at least in places, but the main rule of their political system is simply rule by the strongest. The head orc, the great goblin, is always going to be the biggest and strongest one, like Ugluk among the Uruk-hai or Bolg at the Battle of Five Armies. The strong rule, and they rule by fear. The domination of other beings over the orcs, such as Balrogs, Nazgul, or Sauron, or Morgoth himself, works the same way. They serve out of fear, not loyalty or devotion. We have almost no information about orcish domestic life. They're a race of living creatures derived from elves originally, so they obviously have males and females and reproduce sexually. Where are the orc women? I can only think of two answers to that question that make any sense to me with what we know of orcs. One possibility is that the women are kept, probably by force, back in the caves and pregnant most of the time. Orcs breed like crazy, and orc females must be pregnant a lot of the time. I would also not be surprised if there were orc women fighting in the armies alongside the men. This is just a guess on my part, but it's hard to imagine that orc women would not be equally savage and ferocious, uh, and their bosses are not exactly chivalrous. Obviously, the higher-ups like Sauron and Morgoth want a continually growing orc population as the top priority, but I have to think that the women were often used in battle, too. But anyway, uh, I mentioned before the scene in the Fellowship of the Ring film when Saruman is spawning his new breed of orcs in some slimy birthing pit or something. The emphasis in the film at that point seems to be the impersonality of the orcs, that they are being generated almost by machine, that they're a weapon with no higher life or meaning. This is all quite true and important, but I think that in depicting this scene this way, the film actually downplays the real horror of what Saruman does with orcs. The speculation in the books is that Saruman has mingled the races of men and orcs, creating his goblin men, as they are called at times. If you stop to think about how that would be achieved, the answer is pretty shocking. Orcs, like humans, procreate sexually. 
Elves and humans are obviously genetically compatible. That is, how half-elves are possible. Hi, Elrond. Orcs, being derived from elves, are presumably compatible as well. If one were an evil wizard who is setting out to mingle the race of orcs and men, you know, I don't think you'd do this in a test tube. The method, presumably, would be by rape. Saruman would have to have captured human women and held them captive, forcing them to bear children to orc fathers. This prospect is infinitely more horrifying than the spawning pits we see in the films. Treebeard calls the mingling of orcs and men a black evil, and he meant it. I mean, I think about the comment made in the Silmarillion about how the corruption of orcs in the first place was the most hateful deed of Melkor's to Iluvatar, and I think this action of Saruman is the most hateful deed that he does. Okay, one more note and I'm done. I mentioned earlier that Tolkien wrote a couple alternate theories for the origin of orcs. I think that Mark is right to feel somewhat dissatisfied with the depiction of orcs, because Tolkien himself, I think, was dissatisfied with it as time went on. On one level, orcs were a kind of embodiment of evil. They're just bad guys, totally corrupt, totally ruined. He used the word orc at times in his letters to refer to wicked people, speaking of meeting orcs in town councils or suspecting that there are orcs in the war office of Britain as well as Germany during World War II. In the stories, orcs are bad all the way through and thus serve as a sort of model of badness. Tolkien seems, however, to be dissatisfied with the fact that orcs couldn't repent. They don't seem to have free will at all. There are no good orcs anywhere. Orcs are completely uniform. Tolkien did believe that an individual could become completely ruined, could become so thoroughly corrupted that repentance was no longer really possible. This is what happened to Morgoth, for instance, and it's the state that Gollum is in by the end of the story. But to say that a whole race is permanently in that position seemed unsatisfactory, and Tolkien didn't seem comfortable with it in the end. Okay, that's all for now. Keep the questions coming, and Godspeed.